Thank you for downloading our podcast. This Christmas season, we consider Luke's testimony of Christ. Luke sets out to write an orderly account so that his friend Theophilus can be certain regarding the things he has been taught. What is Luke fundamentally teaching us about the significance of Christ and Christ's entrance into history? Well, this morning we talked about John the Baptist and his advent and entering history and how he is prepared the way. Mary sings her song praising God and how the Lord is the one who takes those who have no hope and basically no place in this age, ultimately, um, as the outcasts, those unworthy, and lifts them up. And how the Lord takes those who are mighty and powerful and humbles them. And so that's really the praise in the song of Mary and how the Lord magnifies his name, shows his holiness as he comes to his people in Christ. Well, now we, we move on and, and we find the story of John the Baptist. And looking at Luke's gospel and thinking about the genealogy of Christ going back to Adam. So if you look at Luke's gospel and Matthew's gospel, Matthew has the genealogy of Christ going back to Abraham, showing Christ as reliving, fulfilling the history of Israel and their failing. Luke does a deliberate task of showing that Christ is reliving human history, overpowering Satan in the, in the reality that he's going to raise up a new humanity. And so when you look at the, the Song of Mary and, and you think of it in those terms of the Lord overcoming the serpent seed, triumphing, showing his might, we now come to a, a line where you have Elizabeth celebrating that the Lord has taken away her reproach and the giving her of this son. And so there, there's a tension that's, that's subtle in the narrative, but it's an important tension. When you think about Zachariah and Elizabeth being the new Adam and Eve, if you will, and you think about Elizabeth having the opportunity to claim significance in this child, right? A, a real temptation there. And the temptation to name this child a name that's significant for Zachariah and Elizabeth so that their significance is found and commemorated in this child. It's a real temptation. And that's an important backdrop when you come to this narrative finding the, the scene. And so when, when we look at this, we think about Luke writing this deliberate account, this deliberate theology by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Again, it's not just Luke doing research, writing something. This is inspired by the Holy Spirit, it's the Word of God. And as Luke writes this, we wonder, what is the theology you're trying to incorporate? What, how are you showing that the Lord really is going to raise up a new humanity and that the Lord really will be triumphant? Uh, you know, you, you think about receiving this as Theophilus, wondering if this Christ is really the Redeemer, wondering if this Christ can really secure Gentiles, wondering if this uh, redemptive purpose is really going to go beyond Israel. And so when you have all this in, in the backdrop, we look at first in asking this question, you know, if the Lord is so sovereign, how do we know that the Lord will triumph? And, and we see this in that first there's a deviant name, and then there's a divine name. 
Again, it's the same name, John, uh, that the angel has uh, commanded that they are to give this child. And so first, the, the deviant name. When we look at the narrative prior to Zechariah's prophecy, and we notice the, the setting of the scene in, in verse 57, that there's a tying together of these narratives. So we have verse 56, where Mary remains uh, with Elizabeth three months. Then we have in verse 57, it's time for Elizabeth to give birth. The reality is we don't know if Mary is, is here or present during this whole scene and, and what's going on with the the village people or the people that are coming over to celebrate this moment with Elizabeth. Uh, we don't know if Mary is just staying through the birth of the son. The implication is she's there through the birth of John and at a minimum. Uh, whether she's a fly in the wall or not, we don't know. Uh, my speculation, looking at the implications, the timing of it, she's probably a fly in the wall, uh, watching all those people interact with Elizabeth and Zachariah and trying to piece together uh, what's going on in covenant history. Again, think of Mary as a very young woman. I mean, we're talking 12 to 14 years old in this context. So, I mean, that's, that's quite young to try and process everything that's going on here. And so as, as we think of, of Mary sort of sitting in the corner, Elizabeth giving birth, uh, we have all the relatives coming together. And, and notice what we have then in verse 58, this important statement that the relatives heard, the Lord has shown great mercy, and they rejoice with her. So verse 58 is telling us the context of how the people view this child. They're, they're seeing this as, you know, maybe in their mind, Zachariah and Elizabeth have finally repented. Uh, Whatever is going on in her life has been dealt with, and now the Lord gives them a child. So they're, they're not thinking about this in terms of the bigger picture of, of redemptive history. The, the Lord has shown them mercy for whatever reason right now. They're not thinking in terms of a forerunner Messiah. They're thinking in terms of Elizabeth has been barren. The Lord has now shown her mercy for whatever reason, and they're rejoicing with her. So the, the tie to this infant, to this child, is very significant. This is not the definitive prophet who goes before Christ in their mind. This is a child who takes away their shame, their controversy, their scandal. So understand, that's what verse 58 is telling us, the mindset of the relatives, the community, and so it sets the stage when we get to the naming as to why they think this name is so deviant. Because she has a child. And as she has a child, the rumor goes out. Now in verse 59, we have the eighth day. So we're finding this, this Hebrew custom that's going on um, at the time of, of John the Baptist. Uh, there's no specific command in Scripture that you name the child when you circumcise a child. But it seems, as Luke's reporting this, this probably has become the tradition. This is sort of the norm. Uh, eight days go by, you circumcise a child. At the circumcision, you publicly announce the child's name. And again, the, the significance of a name in the Hebrew language is that it, it's something that would uh, communicate the significance of the child, the birth of the child, the family of the child. 
And so the, the child's significance is fundamentally tied to the family. So you can understand now they, they go and, and they do the circumcision, and you have all the people getting ready and saying, well, we're going to call the child Zachariah. Now, Zachariah is not a bad name. Uh, it's actually a, a pretty glorious name. It means the Lord remembers. Or remember the Lord is what Zachariah means. I mean, that, that would be such an appropriate name. His, his father's name is Zachariah. Uh, the baby entering history, the Lord remembers this barren couple and, and takes away their reproach. I mean, what, what a fundamental thing where the child's named after the father and commemorates the richness of redemptive history. So there's, there's nothing sinful. You're celebrating God's steadfast love. You're celebrating who God is. Now, as, as they say this, there's a tension here and a significant tension. Because Elizabeth has already celebrated the Lord has taken away her reproach in her pregnancy. So now we wonder what happens because the father can't speak. And so now you start to piece together how the Lord is showing his majesty, isn't he? Because when you go back and you think to the Garden of Eden, remember, genealogy of Christ back to Adam, we think of that story back at the first creation. Satan doesn't walk up to Adam and say, hey, Let's uh, challenge this God guy and see if he really can enforce, uh, you know, this eating of the tree. And let's see what God really does. I mean, let's put God in his place. Grab that fruit, eat it. You know, he, if he said it to Adam, he would have affirmed the Lord's created order because the Lord gave the command to Adam. But the Satan goes to Eve. He goes to the woman. And he gets the woman to question and attempt her husband to question God. So notice the setting here. Elizabeth has the peer pressure of her relatives saying, oh, let's call him Zachariah. Her husband's name is Zachariah. It's a, a beautiful name commemorating God remembering. I mean, is it really that big of a deal to slide from John to Zachariah? You can understand the temptation. And so you, you wonder, what is Elizabeth going to do? Is she going to name this child to commemorate the significance of them as a couple having their barrenness overcome, where is she going to follow the Lord and be a new creature, be a new Eve, if you will, facing temptation? But notice what we find. His mother answered, No, he shall be called John. Notice right there, you have an immediate response. And in fact, in the Greek, there's no implication she even contemplates this, where she's thinking, well, maybe this is a possibility, or maybe, maybe God wouldn't be so upset if we did this. She immediately responds, no, his name's John. That's his name. Well, notice now what's going on. The people are taken back. Well, there's, there's no name in your family in John. Why, why would you call him John? This, this makes no sense. His dad's name is Zachariah. Why are you trying to undermine the father? What, what's going on in, in your mindset and all this? This doesn't make any sense to us. So now they turn to Zechariah. So you're seeing this sort of setting up in the fall, aren't you? So if, if Eve told Satan to go take a hike and get out of there, uh, we're not going to test God. You see exactly what Satan would have done. He would have turned to Adam and said, oh, but, but what about this concept? Do you think God 
can really do something about this if you eat of the fruit? I mean, you're telling God who's boss, and, and, and this God, who is he to tell you what you can and can't do? Come on, just eat of the fruit. It probably tastes really good, and he's depriving you of something good, right? I mean, that's the temptation of Satan, and isn't that the allure of sin, that God wants to deprive us of something good, when the reality is God doesn't want to deprive us of anything good. We need to submit to him. We need to believe that what God lays out for us is truly good. And living within his boundaries is truly living in the goodness of life. And so now the people turn to Zechariah. They make signs. And they say, well, what's his name going to be? And so now we wonder, will Zechariah live up to his name? Will the Lord, will he really remember the Lord? Will he really remember the vision? Or is Zechariah now going to be tempted and say, wow, I really could name this child to communicate my significance. And this is a very godly name. There's a prophet with this name, and I'm a priest, and I served in the temple. I mean, what's the big deal? It's just a name, right? So you wonder, what is Zechariah going to do? Well, he's one who all of a sudden takes a writing tablet and he says his name is John. And what we have here is something else that's subtly operating in the text. Because we don't know how Elizabeth knows his name, just like we don't know how Eve knows that she's not supposed to eat of the tree. The Lord gives a command to Adam. The Lord tells Zechariah what the child's name is going to be. And so we, we see in the narrative that the Lord truly does raise up a new humanity. That somehow Zechariah, maybe through writing, maybe Elizabeth received a, a vision or a revelation we don't know about as she knew details about Mary's response to the news of, of the virgin birth. Whatever the case, we don't know. We're, we're not told. Luke doesn't share it with us, and it's not for us to know. But what it does is it sets the scene for Adam and Eve of a new uh, couple that's set up in the Lord's purpose to fulfill his mandate. And they are put in an exalted position, like Adam in the Garden of Eden, king over the creation. And you think of Zechariah being the, the high priest functioning uh, in his unique role, going into the temple, having the honor of offering incense by himself in the holy place. And so you have the setting, and now you hear Zechariah say, no, his name is John. And so when we look at these names, there is significance. Elizabeth, her name means remembering the Lord's oath, or the Lord remembers his oath. Zechariah, remembering the Lord, or the Lord remembers. And so right here with these names, we have this understanding of the covenant identity of who God is. He remembers his word. He remembers what he has said. And John simply means the Lord is grace or the grace of the Lord. And so you can understand basically how these names function in a subtle way. Zachariah remembers the Lord. You have Elizabeth commemorating that, that the Lord is the one who remembers his oath, his promise to his people. John commemorating that the Lord is gracious. And so it's that understanding of the Lord's steadfast mercy, his compassion for his people with his child entering history. Now notice the event that transpires. So you have an instantaneous response with Adam and Eve, right? 
They're created naked, unashamed. They eat of the tree, they're naked and ashamed. And so it's an immediate, uh, it's immediate change that happens within them. Well, now the, the witnesses who are pressuring John or pressuring Zachariah and Elizabeth to name the child Zachariah, not John, we have now Zachariah immediately speaking. His tongue is loosed and he's able to speak. And notice again how he speaks. He blesses God like Mary. So it's not about their significance. It's about the Lord doing this. Notice in the reaction in verse 65, these people that are saying, oh, you can't name this child John. That's not a significant name. All of a sudden now they're, they're overcoming with fear, like you have Zachariah in the temple seeing the angel, that they recognize that, that something unique is in their midst. That there's something about this child that is not just another story of the Lord overcoming barrenness. It's the Lord demonstrating his mighty hand in recreating uh, his recreative power. Notice in what they say, what then will this child be? And isn't that interesting? Because this isn't even the significant child, so to speak, who enters history. This is the forerunner to the Messiah. This is the one who prepares a way for Christ. And so if you think of Mary still sitting in the corner, witnessing all this, seeing the, the hand of God transpiring, the peer pressure, the response with no, we're going to do what's honorable, having Zachariah, who's a mute, all of a sudden able to speak, recognizing that really there is something unique happening right now in covenant history. And so when they ask this question in terms of what then will this child be, they move beyond understanding that this name is a deviant name to now affirming that there is something that the Lord is doing, which brings us to the divine name. So Zechariah, as he's filled with the Holy Spirit, he now prophesies. Uh, once again, a, a wonderful declaration that they ask this question, and the Lord's basically saying, well, let me tell you. Uh, let me explain to you what's going on. And as we look at this prophecy, and, and we have this new humanity speaking the words of God, we can divide this prophecy uh, quite simply into two sections. We basically have verses 68 through 75, if you look at this. And you can find basically... a. Celebration, a recollection, a blessing of God for how he has remembered his people in covenant history. such so as a general reminder of how the Lord has been faithful. And then you look at 76 through 79, where Zechariah actually answers a question. So basically, if you're going to summarize this, the Lord's saying, what child is this? Well, it's a child that's the answer to covenant history, and it's a child that prepares a way for the Messiah. Uh, so it's, again, testifying to the consistency of God's redemptive mercy, that truly this child lives up to his name. The Lord remembers his grace uh, to his people. And so when we look at this briefly, and we just kind of highlight some themes that's going on here, we notice again that blessing in verse 68, blessed be the God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. 
Now, this visited is not just, you know, the Lord kind of touching base, seeing how things are going. This, this visited, visiting is a personal communication of God truly communing with his people. And so it's that reminder and invitation to start thinking about how the Lord has shown this, this personal connection with his people by his covenant mercy. Uh, this child testifies again that this is who God is. We think in our context of having Christ being united to Christ. We think of the picture of the tabernacle. We think of the temple. Uh, we think of Israel passing through the sea. We think of Israel in the wilderness sojourn. Uh, we think of the Israelites praying to God. And so again and again with this invitation, we start thinking the Lord really has communed with his people. So the visited is that reminder that the Lord is faithful. Now the redeemed is again that recollection of what John names. The Lord remembers his grace. Uh, the Lord has redeemed us. We are those who are enslaved to Christ. And so we move from slaves of sin, slaves of, of debauchery, slaves of, of Pharaoh in, in that picture, to now being slaves who are possessed by Jesus Christ. That's this transfer that the Lord really has paid uh, the price so we have life. But notice that in verse 69 with the advent of what the Lord has done. He's raised up a horn of salvation. This is not really a, a, a declaration of saving. It's, it's more. I mean, that's, that's certainly part of it. But it's more. The horn, you, you think of an animal, right? An animal with big horns is intimidating, right? You don't want to tangle with an animal with big horns uh, because you're probably going to lose. It's a sign of strength. It's a sign of power. So the horn of salvation is a reminder that the Lord is the one who has shown his mighty hand. When we think about this horn of salvation, the house of, of David, this is commemorating for us the, the reality of what the Psalms even celebrate. We think of Psalm 132, uh, verse 17, uh, the promise that a horn will come from the line of David. And what that means is when you think of the, the picture of David in the celebration and chanting of Israel in the glory days of David, they say Saul has slain his thousands, David his tens of thousands. The Lord promising in 2 Samuel 7, he's going to raise up the mighty heir. So what Zechariah is celebrating is he's saying, listen, as John the Baptist enters history, it's a testimony of a proof of the Lord remembering his assertions. The pictures of his triumphant hand are being communicated today in a definitive way uh, that Jesus Christ is entering history. As John enters history, so the Messiah enters history. So you can't just think of John as just an individual who lives in the wilderness. It's the assurance that the Messiah is truly coming and his redemption is being manifested. And so it's through this priestly family that it happens. As we go on, and we think of Zechariah celebrating what the Lord has said, verse 70, uh, that he spoke through the mighty prophets of old. So here, you think of this, this reality of John being the last prophet, right? In the sense that 
He's, he's a prophet who's the last one to predict the coming of Christ. In the sense that he's preparing the way. One's coming who's saying, oh, I'm unworthy to untie. The one whose winnowing fork is in his hand, right? So he's predicting the day of the Lord using the language of the prophets. And so what, what Zechariah is commemorating is the prophets have said all these things. The Lord has given us his word. And again, it's, it's very important. Anyone can say anything, right? I mean, I've used the analogy. I can say, hey, give me X amount of dollars, I'll, I'll take you to the moon. Well, you're going to start investigating. Can this guy fly? Does he have a pilot's license? Does he have a rocket? Is he really able to fulfill this? And you're going to find out, I don't even have a pilot's license or an airplane, so I can't fulfill that very word. But I can still say it. I can assert it. What Zechariah is saying is that the Lord not only asserts radical promises that are unlikely to come to pass in terms of human understanding, but the Lord brings these promises to fruition. And that's what Zechariah is celebrating, these, these things that, that even Abraham, who had these wonderful visions, doubted whether God could really do it from a human point of view. And yet comes to realize God can do it. And Zechariah is saying, that's what we see with the advent of John. As he enters history, what the prophets of old have asserted that seemed too radical, too unlikely, is being manifested in our presence. That the Lord fulfills his word. These are not just empty, silly assertions. The Lord brings his word to pass. And it comes to fruition. That's the celebration of what he's calling to our attention with these prophets of old. He's the one who saves us. He's the one who manifests the reality of his, of his word and what he has done. Remember then, verse 72, you skip down the Holy Covenant, right? So again, it's just briefly what we saw with Mary. This is the Lord doing this by his mercy, what the Lord covenanted to Abraham, he's bringing to fruition, we have life definitively in him. Notice then verses 74 and 75, that we have then this assurance that we're delivered, uh, we serve him, and we do this in holiness and righteousness. But notice how we serve him, without fear. Now, when, when we hear this, we say, well, what does the Lord mean? Because... When we think about part of the essence of piety, isn't it a fear of God? Isn't that the beginning of wisdom? And so what does it mean that, that we serve the Lord without fear, that, that we minimize his holiness, his significance? Well, the point of this is that this fear is a sense of terror, a terror of coming to God in the midst of our circumstances, in the midst of our struggle, in the midst of whatever it may be. And wondering, is this holy God going to strike me dead? Because again, holy is his name. We, we heard that from the Song of Mary. Is he going to strike me dead? And the reality is, as the Lord manifests his promise in Christ, we're not coming before him in this terror that God is going to destroy us. God's going to tear us down. God's going to do whatever he can to see to it that, that we are put in our place. I mean, the, the reality is it's not hard for God to put any of us in our place. It's not hard for God to destroy any of us. I mean, he, he humbles Nebuchadnezzar. He humbles Babylon. He 
humbles Egypt. He humbles the, the Babelites who build the great tower. Do you think it's hard for God to put down an individual? Well, not at all. And that's what Zechariah is celebrating. When we truly understand who God is, we, we will have that reverence for him because holy is his name. He is a, a glorious God. We are not worthy of his affection and his attention. I mean, we, we really are not. But the reality is when you understand the covenantal promises and how God condescends and how he communes with us in Christ, this is a profound thing that Zechariah is assuring us, that the Lord remembers his grace. And based upon his grace, we draw near to him with the full confidence that Jesus Christ has done the work that the Father has set out for him to do. And so, skimming through this and looking through this as we recognize this division and what's going on, you know, understanding that we're going to serve him in holiness and righteousness, and this is the holiness and righteousness that we have in Christ based upon the covenantal promises. We move on where now Zechariah in verse 70, verses 76 to 79 answers their fundamental question. You know, who is this child? Because Clearly now one can wonder, well, is this child the Messiah? Uh, is that who Zachariah and Elizabeth are bringing into history? It would make sense. I mean, they're prestigious line, prestigious Israelites. Uh, there may be a correlation of Zachariah or Elizabeth being tied to David somewhere along the lines. We, we don't know exactly. Or at least not that I can think of definitively. But whatever the case, you would think that maybe they're the ones that are going to bring in this child. But notice now in verse 76 how Zechariah again calls attention to the reality it's not about his significance. Now briefly here, we notice here a new child will be called prophet of the Most High. He will go before the Lord to prepare his way. Well, this is recalling for us Isaiah 40. It's recalling for us Malachi 3 verse 1. He's great prophecies, and you think of Isaiah 40, of bringing Israel out of exile, bringing them back into the presence of God, uh, paving the way for them, being the herald, the great announcer. Malachi 3, verse 1, the refiner's fire, the prophet who goes before the Messiah who brings about the true definitive redemption. When we look at this, and we think about giving knowledge, forgiveness of sins, the tender mercy of God, these sorts of themes. These are themes that we can also find, say, in Isaiah 60, verse 2, and Isaiah 60, the promise of the Lord setting up this international kingdom, that he's going to overturn darkness and bring the light. His people will be brought into this light. You think about this theme of giving light to those who sit in darkness, the turning of a new day, these sorts of themes where even pagan philosophy can speak of, you know, the news is always worse in the darkness of night, but there's always the dawn of a new day. And you think about the, the dawn of a new day in, in the Psalms and praying for that dawn of a new day. It's a new day. It's a, a new history, a new way of redemption, a new deliverance that one will see. And so Isaiah 60 is not where the Lord comes to the worthy, but he comes to the unworthy. And so Zechariah is saying, I want to be very clear, this child who has just entered history through Elizabeth and I is not the Redeemer. 
He is the one who broadcasts the Redeemer, which tells you what? The Redeemer is coming. And as the Redeemer is coming, using this language of Isaiah 60, it's saying that for people like Theophilus, people like us who would be considered outsiders, Gentiles, outcasts, unworthy people, are those who are informed by the messianic ministry of Christ. That as we take hold of Christ by by faith, it's the Lord who's given us this knowledge of salvation. It's in Christ that we have this forgiveness of sins, and it's in Christ that we truly have this life that endures. What is more, when you look at this language of this light to those who sit in darkness, uh, this shadow of death, But the significance of the light can also be a reference back uh, to Balaam's star and and a reference of the Messiah coming uh, to the people. And and this manifestation of the light, you think of the Magi coming to see Christ. But this echo that's probably going back to the Balaam story is another thing to, to meditate on and contemplate. Because Balaam was a great prophet who could twist the hands of gods, right? He could say words and gods would capitulate or give in and submit to his words. And you have the the funny commentary of the Lord having the donkey. And if you know in in Hebrew or the language of a donkey, and I encourage you, if you ever have the opportunity, go out, watch a donkey. There's one up by Spring Hill Church in a field, and it's hilarious to listen to that thing but it communicates what the Lord thinks of Balaam. I mean, you listen to that animal, this is what the Lord thinks of the prophet. There's a reason that when someone's called a donkey, it's, it's not complimentary, let's put it that way. And so this is the Lord giving his commentary to great prophet Balaam. And Balaam cannot do anything to twist the hand of God. In fact, the Lord tells Balaam what you're going to say. This is what you're going to say. This is what you're going to tell the people of God. And this is how it is. And so as this is called to our attention, and you think of John going before the Messiah, the Messiah being the one who is truly going to give this light, John preparing the way, basically going before him, turning on the lights, Christ bringing in the true light, is the one who's going to guide our feet to the true way of shalom, the true peace, the true life in the kingdom. And so when we hear this wonderful blessing, we understand this child is no ordinary child. That this child who goes before Christ is proclaiming the glorious kingdom. And as he proclaims a glorious kingdom, the glorious Messiah, this is that that splendor of the ultimate redemption. What the Lord has asserted that that seems too magnificent, too much, too impossible, that that the Lord can't really conquer Satan. The Lord can't really take away our sin. The Lord can't really defend us. The Lord can't really be with us in exile, right? We find this in covenant history with God's people, having these doubts, having these struggles. And what does the Lord say? Yes, I can be your shield and defender. Abram, I am. Yes, I will be with you when you go into exile in Babylon. I'm not limited to Canaan. Yes, I can bring you home. 
Yes, I am going to conquer Satan. Yes, I am going to be triumphant. That's what Zechariah is celebrating. The reality of the promise that we have an issue with. It's not God, it's us. We doubt the reality. And Zechariah is saying, the advent of John the Baptist entering history shows that this God is the one who truly will overcome death, overcome sin, overcome everything that stands in the way. So we're brought to the Lord in true shalom. Remember, not tolerance, not putting up with us, but true restoration. So we begin with the question of how does this narrative truly communicate to us the Lord's power, his sovereign will? Well, it communicates to us, even in the setting of the prophecy, that the new humanity is raised. There is a real temptation for Zechariah and Elizabeth to claim this child for their own significance and to have an identity in this child, not in Christ, not in the Lord, but in the reality they have this child. But they don't. They submit to the Lord, showing that even the prestigious priestly line does not find their significance in being a prestigious priestly line, but they find their significance in Christ. The Lord sending Christ is not just the Lord doing some magic show or showing some potential of what he can do. But it's the Lord confirming the word of the prophet. Satan challenges this claim, but the Lord is the one who already shows, projecting he will prevail. The men on the road to Emmaus, the end of the gospel, doubt even then if the Lord will prevail. And you can understand Christ's frustration. Didn't you know the beginning of this gospel story? Didn't you hear the word of the prophets? Didn't you hear the celebration of the Psalms? Didn't you see the mighty hand of God time and time again? The Lord prevails. Let us then, as we sojourn under the sun, recognize that the incarnation of Christ is not just some drama. It's, it's a magnificent, incredible thing that... that Truly, if we're honest, we, we can't even wrap our minds around how that all happens and really why God does it. But he does. But it's in that incarnation, as Christ is raised to life after death, we are guaranteed our passage into heaven. Let us not then be a people who push the boundaries of his grace, but let us hear the promise of God. But as we turn to Christ, we have a privilege of serving our God without fear or terror because we have been brought into this kingdom of life. John the Baptist prepares the way. It is Christ who ultimately saves. Let us cling to our Savior. Let us walk in him and let us believe his promises that he has overcome and we are more than conquerors in him. Amen. Thank you for listening to our sermon. 
We hope and pray that our sermons encourage you as you sojourn on your Christian walk. If you have any questions about our church, please contact our pastor through our webpage, urcbelgrade.com. That is urcbelgrade.com. We also have many sermon series archived and available for download on our website, urcbelgrade.com. Most of all, we would love to see you join us in our Christian sojourn by being part of our church. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you. Thank you.